Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Well, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I came across an article um, that proved something that we've all been hoping. Scientists and researchers are now saying that money can actually buy you happiness. Right? Yay. Not, not how you expected me to start this morning? Not, not the usual uh, thing that I would toss out there? Uh, I read this in a Washington Post uh, article uh, that ends with a couple of tweets about people who had read about this study when it was released uh, online. And I'll admit, I did not read the whole study because I wasn't interested, if we're going to be honest. But uh, the tweet said this, money won't make you happy but it's nicer to cry in a Ferrari. (laughs) Money won't make you happy, but it's nicer to cry in a Ferrari. Yikes. (laughs) What do we do about that? I mean, yeah, if you're crying in a Ferrari, there's a whole load of things that we should probably be talking about. But like, how do we live happy lives? That's essentially what they're getting at, right? That's what they're trying to research and figure out. It's like, what does it look like for us to actually live happy and content lives? Uh, I didn't read, again, all of their findings, so I can't tell you all the things that they figured out. But I can tell you that they did not find something that works for all people everywhere all the time. Because we've been trying to find that for about, what, 12,000 years? (laughs) And we still haven't come across it. We've been searching for that answer for a long, long time. And humans have tried everything, right? We've tried everything to find happiness and contentment in our lives. We've, you know, we've tried money. But as we all know, you can be extremely wealthy and still be very sad, lonely, depressed. We've tried success. And as we know, you can be a successful CEO of a Fortune 500 company and still feel like a failure. We've tried relationships, and we've tried relationships real, real hard. Uh, Rom-coms in the 90s are all the proof that you need for that. We've tried that real, real hard. And where has that left us? With the same divorce rate and a reality that like partners and friends can stab you in the back just as easily as they did before, right? Leave you feeling hurt and alone. I would guess, and I'm not going to do this, but I would guess that if I asked you to raise your hand and say, is part of the reason that you're following Jesus because you were searching for an answer to these questions? That most of us in the room would say, that's actually pretty darn close to part of what led me to this place. That it was one of the paths, maybe, that we went down trying to figure out how do I actually live a happy and content life? And, you know, if you've been looking for answers to loneliness, to discontentment, to unhappiness, the good news is that you are in the right spot. And there is a lot of things you can try But if you're actually focused on Jesus, you're going to find those things. But I will warn you, it will not look like that rom-com from the 90s 
or like you crying in a Ferrari. That's the good news. But it will look different. You know, I recently, and I've heard this story a few different places about churches in the Ukraine since the war started. Uh, Stories of pastors talking about the growth that they've seen in their churches. That they were like somewhere around 100, 150 before the war started. So kind of like us. And then the war started and life went all over the place. And many of these churches are now at like 1,500 to 2,000. Why? Because when life got terrible, people started looking for an answer. And the only one that made sense in that extreme condition was Jesus. That's good news for us. And what I hope for us today is that hopefully in a somewhat simple way, Hopefully I don't add too much extra to it, but that we can dig in a little bit deeper on what it looks like to live our lives with a singular focus on Jesus as the one who is leading us, who is bringing the answers to those questions that we have in our hearts. And I hope that if you're here today, that that's what you're looking for, and we can find it in Jesus. So if you have a Bible, open up to Haggai. You might be like, what? Go to Matthew, beginning in the New Testament, go back 12 pages. There you go. That's your trick. Uh, He's about the third from the last uh, book in the Old Testament. And this book is really, really short. It's two chapters. It's four prophecies given in four months in about one calendar year. The second year of the reign of King Darius is what it repeats over and over again, uh, which was about 520 BC. And it was written 20 years after the Israelites had returned back to Israel after being exiled. And what was at that point in uh, their history, it was the Persian Empire. It had been taken over a couple of times before then. Uh, and so they, they came back led by Ezra in about 540, 539 BC, and they come back with this singular like focus of rebuilding the temple. That was what God had sent them back to do. Ezra was leading them towards that. They come back and they, they start to rebuild and they clear out 50 to 70 years worth of trash and uh, weeds and all the other things that grow up when land's neglected for that long. They clear that away and they start to build the foundation of the temple. For three years, they worked hard on it. And then they stopped. Because they were like, what about me? Like, don't I get nice things too, Jesus? Like, you know, don't I get something in this? And they said, what about my house? Or my shop? Or my restaurant? Or our schools? Or our government buildings? Or whatever else that they wanted to build? And so they spend the next 16 years building up everything else. Three years building the temple's foundation, 16 years doing other things and focusing on themselves. And so those are the people that Haggai begins to speak to in chapter one. And let's see what he says. On August 29th of the second year of King Darius's reign, love that, that is so specific. You love that. that. That speaks your language. The Lord gave a message to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel and Jeshua. This is what the Lord says. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. 
Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord says. Look at what's happening to you. You've planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Skip down to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet whom the Lord their God had sent, they feared the Lord. Then Haggai gave the message, gave the people this message from the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked their enthusiasm and they began to work on the house of their God, the Lord. On September 21st, of the second year of King Darius's reign. Here's the first life tip from this book. Don't let things in your life get to the point where God starts comparing your house to his. That's not a good conversation starter uh, if you're following Jesus. Like that was not a good thing. But the Israelites at this point are massively dissatisfied with life. They're poor. They're status in society in the Persian Empire was so low that you didn't want to be lower than them because that meant that you had like no control over your life. Like they had nothing going for them at this point. If you like graphs, here's a graph of what it looks like. They started at the exile up here and then they went crashing all the way down. And just when they thought it couldn't get worse, it did. So now not only are they not able to make it, but then there's a drought. And so they're not able to grow food. They're not able to make it happen on their own. And so they're left scrambling without food, without stuff, wondering what to do. Not a good life trajectory, right? And so to those people, God speaks and he says, hey, Israel, what's your priority? Don't you see what's happening? You plant a lot, but you harvest nothing. You eat a lot, and you're still hungry. You drink a lot, and you're still thirsty. And on top of that, you make money, and it's like you're wearing pants with holes in it, and it's just falling out as you walk along. Like, you're not succeeding in anything. Israel, what's your priority? Their priority was to make their life more comfortable. And they were failing massively, massively failing at their singular goal in life. They were grabbing for more and feeling empty. And on top of that, while they were doing that, they were disobeying God. And they were turning away from what God had asked them to do. And all of it was falling apart. They had basically said, okay, God, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to take a time out from what you're asking and we're going to go build up our savings account. We're going to make our house a little bit bigger. We're going to do these things to make us more comfortable. And then when we're successful enough, we'll come back and we'll pay up. And God said, this doesn't work. This does not work. 
One theologian said, why was life this way? The problem was not with God's lack of power to bless. It's that they put their own interests before God's, and they've reaped the consequences of that set of priorities, a life of futility. If you want a life of futility, then prioritize yourself above what God's asking you to do. If you want a life that is growing in the right direction on that bar graph, up and to the right, focus on the kingdom of God. If you show that graph, thanks, Patrick. Growing up and to the right is what Haggai shows us here in his book. It shows a life trajectory of intentional followers of Jesus. And the very first spot that we start is that we have to focus on Jesus. We have to focus on the kingdom of God and building off of that. I'll clarify more of what the kingdom of God is in a moment, but I want to first just focus on focusing because he called out their focus. That's what his issue was. And what did they do when he did that? It says the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God, and they began to work on the house of their God. God called them out and they were convicted and they immediately said, you're right, let's get to work. What do we do when we've been disobedient? When we've done things the wrong way? When we've put our eyes on other things instead of what God's actually asked us to do? What do we do in those moments? The right thing to do is not to lie because he knows better to come up with excuses because he knows better uh you could fill in the blank for the rest right it's not to start like coming up with all these other things and it's not to ignore him the right thing to do is say you're right i was wrong let's get back to work that's the attitude that we're supposed to have as jesus followers don't wallow, don't argue, don't lie, just get back to work. And Haggai gets results. Dude's got two chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, on top of that, nobody thinks that he's important in the history of anything. Like truly, people in like the, the time that he was in, like a couple hundred years later, they said that those prophets, like him and Zechariah, were the lowest of all of the prophets in Israel. Like, yikes. They said that, uh, that, that it was prof they were prophesying in a time when God's spirit was, was waning, was getting less. And so there wasn't as much clarity of what God was saying. One Jewish scholar said that, he, that Haggai only retained part of the other prophets like Elisha and, and Jeremiah. Like nobody respects this guy. Nobody at all through the history of Judaism and the church. I mean, how often have you read Haggai? Every year, part of your reading plan? You're like, I got anywhere for Haggai. I'm ready for this. Come, Jesus. No, like you never read it, right? It's, it's in that section of books that we don't read because it gets confusing. Uh, it's, two, it's two chapters, like I said. Like it, it doesn't even sometimes feel relevant to our life. I'm not building a temple. You're not either. Like, what do we do with this? Like, and so he's just like pushed to the side. But Haggai gets results more than almost any other prophet in the entire Bible. He spoke God's word and people immediately responded and started to do something. 
Like, I will be the least anointed speaker of God's word if it will inspire people to go and do what Jesus is asking them to do immediately. Sign me up for that game. That is what matters in this. What matters more in the kingdom of God? Going viral or having hearts changed? What matters more? God spoke and the people began to rebuild the temple. But again, do you feel called to build a temple? Not really, right? Me neither. I've never felt like Jesus has spoken, said, Stephen, go and build a temple in that field. Like that's never been a thing that I felt pointed towards. So what are we supposed to do with this whole building theme that we see throughout this book and, and other books in, in the Bible? Well, let's, let's read on and start to get to that point. It says in chapter two, verse one, then on October 17th of that same year, the Lord sent another message through the prophet. Say this to Zerubbabel and Jeshua, to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, and its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. But the Lord says, be strong. Be strong, all you people left in the land, and get to work. For I am with you, says the Lord. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So don't be afraid. How, in comparison, does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. The new thing looks different. But that doesn't mean it's worse or that it's less. What do we do when we reach a new stage in God's plan? And it looks different than the other ones that we've experienced and that we've lived through. You know, we as humans, we love being nostalgic, right? You know, again, 90s rom-coms. I'm just going to try and throw them in as many times as I can today. So, like, expect another... No. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we love being nostalgic. So I'm sure that there is a time in your life that you look back on finally and you're like, that was my favorite. You know, maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe it was college. Uh, maybe it was when you were just married. You had little kids. Maybe it's right now. And if so, you're winning. Well done. Keep going. Uh, like, but we all have those moments, right? You're thinking of it right now. I see it in your eyes. You've glazed over and you're riding, you know, a scooter and shooting a Red Ryder BB gun. Like you're there right now. It was a time that you loved that you loved the people that you were around, that you loved where you lived, where you were at, like what you were doing. It, it, was, it, it was a beautiful time to you, right? What if you never experienced life in that way again? What if the church was different, the people were different, and you changed to the point that you couldn't experience life in that same way again? What if when good things happen, you don't feel the same way that you did in your memory of that one time back in the day? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. 
Friends, if you want to live a good, happy, content life as a Jesus follower, you need to smash comparison as much as you can. Destroy it. Because comparison will destroy you. Comparison will leave you looking at something that's not even real anymore. It will own you. It will slowly eat away at your ability to be happy, to be content, to find joy. It'll even eat away at your ability to be in the presence of Jesus. Because comparison is creating a false dichotomy. It's comparing things, for the most part, that aren't even the same. So how can you compare them? You know, apples to oranges, right? Or Reese's to Skittles. Reese, I know some of you in the front were like, when's he going to talk about the candy? I saw Esther. She was like, I'm in right now, please. Uh, Reese's are the best. They are the best. Peanut butter and chocolate, this is the only way the candy should be. I'd be fine with that for the rest of my life. And this size is right. I've had those thin ones. What's the point? And I've had those big ones, and I've walked away, and I'm like, uh, that was too much. Like, I could tell that this is the way that it should be. The genius that made this knew what they were doing. Skittles are terrible. <laughs> Fake fruit-flavored chewy junk. That's all that it is. Lemon and lime and orange? Gross. It doesn't taste like any of those things, and I don't know what that means that it tastes like. And the grape makes me think about Robitussin. Like, why do I want Robitussin in my mouth? So basically, I get a bag of Skittles, and you know what I like? The red ones. That's it. And you know what they do with these, right? They give you like three of them in the stupid bag because they know that those are the only ones that you like. And so then you're faced with the decision. Will I eat all of these things that I hate because I feel bad? Or will I throw them all away? And you feel like wasteful because like people actually care if you're throwing away Skittles. Like that's the substance that people actually need, right? No, you could give me 50 ways that are logical and factual that Skittles are better than Reese's. And I would still disagree with you. Because I like Reese's. And that's what wins. And, right. And now I'm going to eat them right now in front of you. No, no, no. That would be terrible. That would be mean. People are like, please don't. Uh, uh, but my preference has biased my decision. Right? Okay, who wants the Skittles? Somebody give me a hand. Okay, Justin. Who wants the Reese's? Okay, I'll throw... Oh, Lynn, this is, it's your birthday. Happy birthday. There you go. Happy birthday, Lynn. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Right. Have you... Uh, how have we allowed our personal bias and preference to affect how we engage with Jesus. You knew that's where I was going. How have we done that? Let me throw out a couple of ways that we might have done it. You know, I like big bands and fog machines and dark 
And that's how I want to worship. Well, I like acoustic guitars and silence and space to process with me and Jesus. Well, I'm glad we have coffee. I really want bagels. Because the way that I like to worship is with coffee in one hand and a bagel in the other. So during the first song, as I'm biting on it, I got my hand up worshiping. And I'm eating at the same time, you know, my, my coffee hands worshiping. I think it's disgusting that you would ever eat in the sanctuary. I've heard that one before. Uh, I like preachers who are serious and somber, and they cut to the point. I like preachers who tell stories and jokes and, and are relatable. I want the old temple. It looked so much better. And God says... I get it. I liked it too. I was there. But would you rather be in that empty, closed off, used to be nice building or here in my actual presence? Where would you rather be? Pete Gregg speaks to this and he says, if we're not careful before we know it, we find ourselves looking back on a particular year or program or conference as a spiritual highlight of our lives. And it's sad because what that really means is that we've substituted a past experience that was good when it happened, but that is not real anymore for God's actual lived out presence in this space now. Where would you rather be? No fond memories worth trading for the presence of Jesus, friends. In Exodus, there's this great encounter between Moses and God where they're basically arguing. And Moses is arguing with God about what they're going to do. And, and he says to God, he says, look, this is what it comes down to. If you're not with us, I'm not going anywhere. If your presence is not with us, then don't send us up from here. The only place I'm going is where your presence is. Friends, if we don't destroy comparison in our lives, it will destroy our ability to be able to encounter Jesus today. But if we can do it, if we can destroy it, if we can move on, if we can keep going, then we'll be on mission with Jesus. I said we'd talk about kingdom of God and kind of this idea of mission. And so I want to talk about that for a second. You know, in a class that I led this winter, actually that Bill was talking about in the video, uh, I, I used a line from somebody else. Uh, and he said, what are the, what's like the goal of a follower of Jesus? And it's three things. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus would do if he was in your shoes. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus would do if he was in your shoes. The more that you're in the presence of Jesus, the more it starts to rub off, the more confident you are to be able to live that out in your 
life. That's the whole point of discipleship, right? To live our lives in a way that Jesus is calling us to. So I realize there may be some of us who are new to following Jesus, or maybe this has just been kind of a vague thing, and you're not quite sure what it actually means to be on mission with Jesus. So let me show you, looking at it through this framework, how that would play out. Going through the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives his mission statement, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then he rolled up the scroll and he handed it back and he sat down and everybody was watching him. And then he said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Those things that Jesus just said, those are the things that he did. That's what the kingdom of God moving in our world looks like. If you want to know like actually what it is, that's what it is. That's what it looks like for us to be on mission with Jesus living this out in our lives. And so in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus sends out his followers to go and to do the stuff that he's been doing, it shouldn't be a surprise what he tells them to do. Listen to what it says. One day he called them together and he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they begin to go to the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. And then in Luke 10, he sends out six times that number. And when they return, the 72 reported joyfully to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And Jesus goes, yes. And you can hear him sigh as he says this. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Don't rejoice because you went viral or because somebody patted you on the back and said, good job. Don't rejoice because you got to look cool when you did something. Don't rejoice because people like you more now. Rejoice because you've been with me. You've become more like me. And because you're doing what I would do if I was in your shoes. That's what you need to rejoice about. Not how famous you are or how cool it makes you, but how much you are like me. So if we're on mission, if we're building the kingdom of God like Jesus asks us to, what does that look like? It means the poor are cared for in our communities. It means that those imprisoned spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically will find freedom. It means that those who have been oppressed by Satan and his followers will be freed because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and they can't stay there anymore. It means that those who need healing, blind, lame, etc., those who need healing will be healed. And it means that people will hear about the kingdom of God, about the good news of Jesus. And when they are impacted by the good news of who Jesus is and what he's about, they're going to turn and then join us and start to bring that into our world because it's going to transform them so much that they can't stay there and just keep doing the same thing. But they found the thing that brings them happiness. They found the thing that brings them life. And they want to tell everybody about it because it's so powerful that who wouldn't want to have that? That's what it would look like. Know your mission and then get to work. 
be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus would do if he were you. And so Haggai says this to the Israelites, know your mission and then get to work. And sometimes we just need to get to work. Sometimes we need to stop analyzing what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes we need to stop questioning what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes we need to stop looking around and being afraid of doing what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Sometimes we need to stop judging other people for doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we need to just get to work. But getting to work doesn't mean that we're blindly going in doing something. No. It means that we are trusting in who Jesus is because we've spent time with him because we've become like him and because we trust that in following Jesus that he will lead us where we need to go. Following Jesus isn't the same as just filling in numbers on a spreadsheet. If we're willing to keep taking steps, he will start revealing to us where it is that he's sending us and what it is that he's calling us to. And this kind of how he ends Haggai, this this book in chapter 2 verse 19 he says i'm giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn you've not yet harvested your grain and your grapevines fig trees pomegranates and olive trees have not yet produced their crops but from this day onward i will bless you show the graph one more time for me patrick do you want to go up and to the right in life God promises to give us what we need when he calls us. Think about who he's speaking to. I told you at the beginning. He's speaking to a people that are living in an area with drought that literally don't have food. And to those people, he says, mark this day down. Right now, you don't have anything. But I'm going to provide. It's going to be a miracle because there is no earthly way that this should be able to happen. You don't have enough water to be able to grow things. But I'm going to give you all the food that you need if you focus on what it is that I'm calling you to. Maybe it'll look different. Maybe it'll feel different. But if God is there, then that's where we have to be. Sometimes we need inspiring words. Other times we just need to get to work. And we need to focus on what Jesus is calling us to. The Bible tells us that fulfillment isn't found by focusing on ourselves and building up ourselves. It's found by focusing on Jesus and then all the rest will be taken care of. I recently uh, read this in a book. It was a couple that was getting ready to go and do something kind of risky and they felt like God said this to them. If you give me everything you've got, I'll give you everything I've got. If, you've, if you give me everything you've got, I'll give you everything that I've got. Here's what I want to do. We're going to worship. But first, I just want to give us an opportunity to respond. I know in a room like this, there may be a couple of us here who have never made a decision to give Jesus everything we've got. Maybe that's why you're here. But as you're listening, you're like, no, this is something that I want. And what I want you to do, if that's you, is just raise your hand and then I want to pray with you. Maybe you've walked away from Jesus and this is your time to turn around and to re, for real, 
give him everything you've got. And if that's you, just throw up your hands and I just want to pray with us. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the one with answers. You're the one who is trustworthy and worth following. And our ways have proven to be faulty. And so Jesus, just right now, we give you all that we have. We give you control over our relationships, over our finances, over our careers, over where we live, over whatever it is that's holding on to us. We give you control. Because we trust in who you are. And we ask for you to lead us. Forgive us for the things that we've done, the ways that we've tried on our own. We're not going to throw any excuses out. We're just going to turn and follow. We're asking you to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that for the first time, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to give you a book. Uh, to kind of explain a little bit of what Jesus is doing in your life. But let's stand. We're going to worship. Jesus, I just pray in this space that you will come and meet us in our hearts. Wherever we are on that trajectory, come and meet us. Come and speak to us and come and change us. Move in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Thank you.